Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Michael R. Agostino, RPH, who is Chief Executive Officer of Network of Advanced Specialty Healthcare, formerly North American Specialty Hospital, NASH. We will discuss medical tourism in Mexico for orthopedic patients. Mike is a registered pharmacist and an entrepreneur with 30 years of experience in the healthcare industry. He has been a founder, co-founder, and key contributor to the formation of several companies. He served as board chair and an executive board member for the Lower Plains region of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and board chair of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Elena. Great to be here. What do we mean when we say medical tourism? From our experience, mine personally, uh, medical tourism, I think, is a a, a label that has been developed uh, just, frankly, over time. And I think what has also happened, too, is um, there's, there's sort of a mixture here of receiving treatment and going to a vacation spot. And one of the things that we are working on here at NASH is to, to elevate ourselves away from that, frankly. Um, media has played a part in that as well, <clears throat> labeling the crossing of a border and perhaps a vehicle um, to seek uh, medical treatment and, and even to procure medications as well. I think that has, uh, that has been developed from, from that side as well. And one of the things we are committed to within NASH is to really get away from that label. And uh, hopefully I'll have the chance to explain as to why, but we see a, a travel for treatment program uh, is exactly what we offer uh, to our customers. On the orthopedic end, what are we referring to when we say orthopedic patients or orthopedic treatments? Because that is a pretty broad term, right? It's very broad. There's really two parts to orthopedics at a high, high level. <clears throat> there is um, there's joint replacements and there is repair. Um, could be a deterioration of uh, elbow knee, spine, uh, that would be the repair side, uh, could be over um, uh, repeated uh, movement and use and or sports injuries. <clears throat> then there's also joint replacement. And the joint replacement side, I, for instance, a new knee, new hip, would be exactly what we focus in on. And that's how NASH was formed. Uh, that's where we started. That was our entry into Uh, travel for treatment, which was the original thought when we incorporated our company in 2016 was to not what, you know, what if we had no borders when it came to offering quality healthcare uh, to us citizens. And then that, that was the start and uh, how we went even further was to establish ourselves at a different level of pedigree when it came to offering knee and hip replacements. And we looked at what, what is it that would really drive interest uh, for our uh, U.S. Uh, patients. And so I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a bit as well. Paint a picture for us, if you would, 
of numbers, what is the scope that you're looking at? I looked online and one of the data points that I found was that there are about 7 million orthopedic patients in the United States per year. So I take that to mean 7 million people in the United States who are having procedures each year and about 24,000 surgeons. This is just in the U.S. How do you define your universe, your target audience from within this data point that we've got? And do you even agree with that? Yeah, no, I don't disagree with it. I do agree with it. But I would say we go probably a little bit higher, uh, and here it, here it is, is that um, just to give you a little bit of, of experience here, so when we incorporated NASH in 2016, focused on knee and hip replacements, we started to uh, provide surgeries uh, roughly in uh, just a little bit after that, 2018, 2017 timeframe, and uh, what happened as we all experienced globally was uh, a pandemic you know many of us never ever experienced anything like that before travel for any type of treatment was halted and so nash went dormant and so uh, we realized uh, as a group that um, because of the reception the positive reception that we received we wanted to bring the company back out of its dormancy and and back into uh, the, the the an offering within a specific group within the United States. And here's really what we look at. Our confidence level as to why we wanted to bring Nash back is not because of only our pedigree and our approach and elevating travel for treatment, but also too, the reality is that we have, we have a serious economic issue specific to healthcare in the United States. And Right now, we have healthcare expenditure just in the U.S. as compared to other countries, two to four times higher, inclusive of even prescription drug spend, two times higher, at least. And so, what does that translate into? Is we've got, and we hear this, we hear this directly from the market. We have legitimate concern from those that are providing healthcare insurance to their employees about the acceleration of costs. And so what we look at is right now, just in 2023, you have an acceleration of about um, 6% happening right now, uh, uh, just, you know, just past the inflationary rate. That's not something that we can maintain year to year. And then also too, we have, uh, a very specific focus that I'll get into later on the drug expenditure side, specifically in, in high cost medications. We label them as specialty drugs, typically medications for complex conditions and disease states. And that continues to grow at a compounded rate of about 8% annually. And so, so what does that all mean is that when employer groups are faced with uh, double digit increases, in their premiums, that becomes now to the point where if you look at an expense line item, typically payroll is your biggest expense item when you're running a company. Well, healthcare is getting very close to that line item and it never was like that before, but it is getting there. And so the concern now is how in the heck am I going to provide 
the best benefit possible to my employees because why? I mean, employers want to have the best benefit available. They want to be able to attract quality employees. They want to be able to retain quality employees. And this is a big part of the employee experience with an employer. And so we feel like Nash, this is the perfect time for Nash to come back. So this is what Nash looks at. Nash looks at overall trend, the trend of healthcare expenditure. That dovetails down into orthopedics. And that's just a, that's just a sliver of, of what we're dealing with here. So Nash is uh, going on, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think, but Nash will and is expanding into other portfolios of service as well, but staying focused on orthopedics. That's what we, that's what we look at is what's the pain point right now from a service side, outcome side, as well as expenditure side when it comes to employer groups. For purposes of our discussion today, are we talking about companies who are working with third parties such as NASH to provide insurance to their employees outside the United States for orthopedic procedures? Is, is my understanding correctly? Yeah, that's, yeah, you summarized it nicely. We, so within our focus as of right now, uh, keep in mind that NASH has literally been re-energized back to providing services as of uh, just uh, the latter part of 22. <clears throat> and our, our, for the lack of a better term, our, our, our really sweet spot here is a growing, there's a growing trend where employer groups are becoming self, self we call it self-funded, <clears throat> excuse me, or self-insured. Simply, it, it, as it sounds, you have employer groups that are essentially funding the healthcare benefit to their employees. And when that type of employer group has that type of insurance offering, they typically have a lot more control as to what's covered and not covered and what can they offer their employees. And so when that happens, uh, having Nash inserted as uh, part of the benefit offering, there's an opportunity to really work with that employer group and the patient as well to really look at, okay, what is the value that Nash can offer from a service perspective, both both not just in customer service, but also to in positive clinical health outcomes, but then also too, how can Nash have a positive impact on saving money. And so in summary, I, I'm hard pressed to find a lot of offerings or any offerings in our in the United States right now where there is a decrease in cost, but an elevated level of service. And, and it's been our experience that if there is a decrease in cost, typically there's a service item that has been taking, taken away. Something has been chipped away, and so um, uh, that 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 falls into our sweet spot right now, uh, relative to who is it that we work with in the United States. Historically, it used to be that many people in Latin America would come to the United States to get the best health care, quote unquote, in the world, and 
it, some of that is still happening as far as I know, but it seems now that what we're looking at is access to health care. So the best health care ostensibly is still here, but is not accessible to a lot of people anymore. And so people are traveling overseas, including Mexico and many other places further afield mm-hmm. to get affordable health care orthopedics, uh, but not just that. Plastic surgery seems to be very popular. How, where is that dividing line? Because there certainly are many concerns for Americans to think about leaving their city or their county or their state, never mind their country, to an unfamiliar place where they speak another language, where they have another culture, to get healthcare, which is oftentimes a very scary proposition. What can you tell us about that and why Mexico is your answer? I appreciate that. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so we take the stance of, and we recently put out a public service announcement um, just to give the U.S. citizens some guidance on how to be safe, frankly. Uh, There have been and and continue to be some really unfortunate uh, experiences uh, that we hear in the media of of tragic events, unfortunately. But from our perspective, we want to be very specific here to share that the service that we're offering to our patients is very, very safe. So in other words, um, we have two cities in Mexico where uh, the U.S. State Department is not offering advice where not to travel. And in, in other words, Cancun and Monterey is labeled as safe, but, you know, certainly be mindful of your surroundings. We we take the initiative of greeting the patients and their caregiver, by the way, uh, at the airport. We provide the transportation uh, to hotel, hospital. We literally, from wheels down to wheels up, are with the patient every step of the way. So escorting uh, the patient with their companion, their caregiver, is part of our model. We also uh, recommend travel by air as opposed to traveling by vehicle. You know, combining that concierge type of approach by air, uh, we feel is very important. And then also within our facilities, uh, the hospitals are in fact U.S. accredited facilities, JCI accredited. Uh, There's only seven hospitals in Mexico, two of which we will contract with, we do contract with, uh, that are JCI accredited, Joint Commission International. Thank you. So that is an uh, that that is that is an uh, that is a um, an accreditation approval process that validates safety, compliance, patient uh, protocols, clinical outcomes, safety, everything that one would expect in uh, from from a healthcare provider or institution here in the United States. It's the same, and so there's there is that there is that level of confidence that um, 
that is portrayed by that level of accreditation. You know, we also say too, just like our model at NASH is making sure that there is an engagement with uh, your US-based physician and your treatment plan, especially in the pre and post-op process. You know, this is not something where you should do a one-off and and determine that this is something that is important for you. I think including your physician within the United States is paramount. And, And we make sure that our benefit does not alienate that process because that process is important. We need to know what's the patient's state of health prior, and we need to communicate the patient outcome post. That's called continuity of care. That's the responsible thing to do when it comes to treating a patient. It should not be segregated out. It should not be separated out and forgotten. And uh, um, I think that is... uh, incredibly important. And lastly, it's it's making sure that your engagement with somebody, an entity, an organization that has experience of facilitating healthcare outside of the U.S., which is us, is paramount. And, and this is not a, a self sort of um, uh, advertisement here for NASH, but I, we're talking about patient safety here. And uh, we, we feel that is absolutely paramount and the best outcome possible, both for patient safety and for health outcomes. A couple of thoughts come to mind. You mentioned that your recommendation in general for patients traveling to Mexico for healthcare is that they fly there rather than drive. And what comes to my mind immediately is, of course, the recent murders in the border city. What was it, a a group of four that went down to uh, Mm -hmm. Mexico that were murdered or Mm -hmm. some of them were murdered. Would you tell us a little bit more about why that happened and it wouldn't happen in these two cities that you have identified Cancun and Monterey? Well, first that, that was an absolute tragic event for individuals, I believe from, the Carolinas traveling down into Montemaros, Mexico, which, by the way, Montemaros is not recommended by the U.S. State Department for any U.S. citizen to go into that territory. So that's that's number one. I mean, that is that's immediately a red flag for, for anybody. Um, um, you know, the, there becomes greater variable when you are traveling by vehicle, uh, driving into an unknown area and not maybe uh, too certain of your surroundings, I think, um, you know, there, th- there's risk of doing that anywhere. Um, you know, we certainly hear about tragic events in, in our own urban cities, you know, Chicago, New York, et cetera. So I think that that is relevant anywhere. Um, but, but in this particular case, you know, I don't know, I can't comment on the specifics as to why, but the difference being here is that if you're traveling by air, um, you know, there's a certain safety element there relative to the entry into the country uh, in a safe uh, way through customs to the airport. <clears throat> and as you exit the airport, uh, you have our representative greeting you, literally greeting you uh, as you're exiting and, and taking you into their very familiar territory and market and making sure that uh, you get to your destination and to your assigned appointments 
safely and on time. So, so I think you know, just at high level, those considerations alone, that's a, that's a big, big difference in approaching uh, healthcare across our border. Is that specifically for those two cities? Because I recall not that long ago that there had been shootouts at the airport in Mexico City. So are we talking about airport safety in those two cities you mentioned only? Mm-hmm. No, I'm just talking about, frankly, having a destination arrival and somebody there to pick you up. Um, I, I, I don't, not familiar about shootings in Mexico City. We, we don't provide treatment in Mexico City um, currently. Um, so I, I, sorry, I can't comment on that, but uh, rest assured, um, you know, we, we cannot be the predictor of, of bad events happening, but we certainly can be uh, the planner to, to mitigate, to make sure that uh, as best we can, bad things do not happen to our patients because we're there to help them every step of the way. The safety once they get off the plane and the greeting is what you're referring to right now, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, there are other travel for treatment programs available. And, you know, we've, we have, we've heard stories where uh, uh, patients have signed up for, you know, whether it be a dental procedure or a bariatric procedure, whatever the case may be, and arrive at a, a, a maybe a different country, frankly, and uh, get off the airplane. And it's expected for them to find their way to uh, the physician's office or treating hospital or facility uh, on their own. Um, that is not our model. I, I, I will never, never agree to that. Um, I think, if anything, that's what makes us different is that um, you get a team assigned to you uh, from the moment you arrive to the moment you depart. And this is only available through employers or can the general public procure this access that you're describing directly with individual organizations or companies such as yours? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. The, fir- the first part is for the today right now, it is through your, your benefit uh, offering through your employer. Um, just because our program fits so nicely into that self-insured benefit design and and uh, we typically don't even have to wait to a new benefit year coming up. The, the, the benefit offering can literally be attached at current year uh, per the approval of the employer group. But um, the, the, the latter part of your question, which is can consumers come directly to us? In, in 2024, I will share, uh, it is our plan to have just that offering. We call that more of our consumer-based uh, side of healthcare. Uh, the services will be the same, but there'll be other procedures that we can offer that typically are not covered under a benefit from an employer group. And those could include uh, bariatric services for uh, uh, extra help needed in or control in, in weight management, potentially cosmetic uh, fertility medications services. So there's there's going to be an announcement here very soon with other services that that we will be able to offer that will be directed more to the consumer, but yet the service model that I explained earlier will not change. Uh, it'll be very handheld, very concierge-like. 
how many employers or how many employees fall under this access that you're describing that's available right now? Um, that's a great question because that is a constantly changing number. The one thing I can comment on, I don't have an exact number for you, but the one thing I can tell you is that more and more uh, employer groups are transitioning to that self-insured environment just because um, I, I just the pulse of the market from what I can read is they do want greater control over their benefit offering. And what's driving that need for greater control has been the elevation of its expense. And I, you know, we, we've got, and I give employer groups so much credit uh, considering the, the headwinds of, of just, and I remember, excuse me, I'm going to deviate here a little bit because I remember just running other companies where I, I literally would be on pins and needles knowing that I was going to get my next year's insurance premium presented to me because I never knew what to forecast for the new year coming up, but it, it was never not a shock. It, it's just, you know, you, it's a head scratcher as to how this could possibly be so much more expensive than the year previous. But um, the one thing I can tell you is that from, from our scope or field of play or perspective is that we can see employer groups on the rise that are converting more and more over to that self-insured space. And, uh, it could be as little as a hundred employees, uh, you know, to as, as you know, big as ninety thousand, hundred thousand employees. So it's a it's a wide range. Are you anticipating that there are going to be particular types of companies or particular size companies, or even geographies, companies in states, certain states that are most likely to embrace this concept? Yeah, that's yeah, and also two great questions. So I would say it's the more progressive companies. It's it's the ones that are just looking for something different to offer their employees, meaning greater care, and then also to looking for cost savings. But we also see um, the adoption rate of employer groups. I would say more in the southern part of our country, uh, having a greater comfort level with travel to Mexico simply because of the proximity. But then, you know, this is also why Nash is looking to expand uh, in the northern part, neighboring country of Canada as well, because, you know, the familiarity and and um, and comfort level of our uh, uh, northern states and ease of access, frankly, too, uh, in traveling to Canada. So there is a little bit of that perception as well, uh, the southern part of our country versus the northern part of our country that I would say would um, have an appeal to either either country north or south of us. Well, and certainly if you're looking at Canada from a culture and language perspective, uh, for some people there might be a much greater comfort level if they can communicate in English, except for the Quebec province. I think we're looking at an English-dominant uh, healthcare system, right? Yeah, but yes, another valid point, but uh, I should have said earlier too, um, our staff is bilingual. And so uh, in the event that there would be any type of barrier, 
uh, we would make sure that that was uh, uh, taken care of, that under no circumstances would there be any challenges of uh, any healthcare practitioner from our team uh, communicating to the patient and the caregiver, because we feel that caregiver's involvement is absolutely critical, uh, making sure that, um, you know, the patient really understands everything. It doesn't always happen where when you're the patient, you might not hear everything just because it's a little overwhelming knowing that, you know, there's some things going to change here uh, and that um, we make sure that the caregiver is fully informed as well. The other um, issue that often comes up in terms of healthcare in the Americas, uh, outside North America, perhaps, uh, I don't know the statistics for Mexico, but oftentimes was the risk of infection, and this is particularly a problem with orthopedic surgery. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, keep in mind, uh, for our surgery procedures, uh, we, we follow, it, it's U.S. protocol driven, number one. <clears throat> and so we, we have our own staff of surgeons and we have primary care physicians, we have anesthesiologists, we have physician's assistants, we have a chief medical officer that is engaged and involved in evaluating everything uh, for that patient prior to surgery. And something as simple as, uh, we just had our patient recently where uh, they had a scheduled um, teeth cleaning. Well, that is sort of very important when it comes to making sure that we have somebody qualified for surgery or not, because that's an entry of bacteria into the bloodstream potentially. And so we have to be mindful of that. So all of those uh, specific um, the protocols are adhered to to make sure that we are vetting out the patients as clearly as possible, seeking the patients literally to have the best outcome uh, uh, possible for their surgery. So that's just one part. The other part, keep in mind, too, is that we are flying down uh, our U.S. surgical team in collaboration with our Mexican surgery team to conduct this surgery. And so, um, and that's two. Three is keep in mind that our facilities are, are accredited. And, and by way of accreditation, uh, there are certain expectations of, of compliance and sterilization and making sure that uh, the patient is going to be as safe as possible relative to the procedure at hand, inclusive of discharge. So when the patient is post-procedure, we have our orthopedic surgeons uh, as well as our primary care physician checking on the patient to make sure that the healing process is going in the right direction and that there's no redness, there's no potential infection happening, and uh, uh, they're the ones to discharge the patient appropriately to make sure that, that uh, everything is free and clear and that the patient is ready for physical therapy. So there are so many steps involved to mitigate and minimize um, uh, any type of um, infection uh, that can happen during the procedure as best we can. Did I understand correctly? You're saying that you have staff, physicians, and support staff that are employed by your company that fly down to Mexico to perform and oversee yeah, these maybe, procedures? 
maybe I should insert that earlier. I apologize, but yeah, that's exactly the Nash model. So, so we yes, so we coordinate, and again, that's another conveyance of safety, and and you know that's our that's our sort of promissory note in healthcare here is that we fly down a, a U.S. based surgeon <clears throat> to work in collaboration with our Mexican based surgeon, both licensed orthopedic surgeons. We also fly down a physician's assistant. We also fly down what's called a scrub tech, somebody who helps to literally navigate the operating room. Uh, We will have an anesthesiologist on staff in Mexico, and that is part of the service that we offer specific to our orthopedic procedures. And okay, so maybe I'll ask the question, which is why do we do that? Well, the first is, is that um, our, or our orthopedic surgeons are very volume-based. So it's not uncommon for an orthopedic surgeon in Mexico to maybe do 100 knee replacements, maybe 150 knee replacements on an annualized basis. Um, but it's not uncommon for our orthopedic surgeons to do 400, 550 um, knee replacements in a year. So the volume is really something that is important when it comes to fine tuning your craft and your expertise. When it comes to a joint replacement, that is a big deal. It is the, it is the consistency that is established as a result of volume, but also too having the U S based physician team or excuse me, surgical team, uh, down, uh, at our facilities, working in collaboration with our Mexican surgeons, um, is also uh, an elevated level of confidence uh, to our customers. Because if you think about it, having a U.S. surgical team uh, down in Mexico following U.S.-based protocols in a U.S.-accredited facility is is a very um, is a very comforting uh, narrative to offer our customers, our patients, who are considering a travel for treatment program, our travel for treatment program. And so there lies the big, big difference with NASH. That's the service we offer specific to our orthopedic program. Part of the concern historically with infections was centered around the surgical theater, the operating room, and the risk of infection that was during the procedure itself. Uh, And that's something ostensibly that you're not bringing from the United States. What can you tell us about that? Um, I'm going to, it falls in line again with what I had mentioned earlier, which is we have to, uh, as we tell our uh, patients and our, our, our groups, our customers is that, There is a certain level of expectation that is required of our hospital partners. That that level of expectation is that the protocols followed for sterilization in clean, uh, very professional operating rooms. That that is a a JCO accreditation, that JCI accreditation, it's a stringent expectation. It is it is not, and I give our hospital partners so much credit. It is, it is something you have to work at every single day to maintain 
there is a high, high level of expectation to maintain that level of accreditation. And But why? It's because it is there to promote a level of consistency and safety when it comes to treating patients in all aspects of healthcare. So our confidence level in working with accredited facilities falls right in line with um, uh, no different than working with a highly accredited hospital here in the States. What can you tell us about the implants themselves? There's always a lot of discussion about who decides what implants are used and the influence that the manufacturers of implants have on the physicians and their staff, etc., uh, and the ties to the results. Uh, well, what I can tell you is, number one, we have a we have a um, orthopedic committee that is comprised of twelve highly highly rated physicians. One of which is currently the president of the Heat uh, Knee Hip Society, which is the number one association for orthopedics. The other uh, two more surgeons on that committee, on our committee we're former presidents of the very same association. So our level of pedigree within our committee is, I, I could not be more proud to be uh, associated with our surgeons. They are the ones that, with our chief medical officer, vet out um, the use of uh, the, the joints that are gonna be used for our procedures. Having those options at hand then translate down into our protocol. When we are reviewing patients for their surgeries, it is our team of surgeons that decide which is the best joint to use for a particular patient. Could be um, you know, many factors associated with which one to pick. Um, uh, is, you know, what's, the, what's the BMI, what's the weight, body mass index of that particular patient? Is there a more preferred joint to use that um, uh, versus somebody who does not have a high body mass index? So I leave that up to the to the experts, the experts that are employed by Nash uh, that um, decide which is the best one to use for our patients. What weight do, do costs or cost savings? play into the decisions that this committee makes? Because this whole process that we're discussing is cost-driven. People are leaving their country to travel to another country because of cost savings. So when they make this decision about the procedures and specifically the, the implants as we we're discussing, how much weight do they give to the cost versus the needs of the patient if you have anything you can share with that? Yeah, I, well, first of all, the patient outcome is absolute priority. Um, the, the reason for um, wanting or, or, or looking to travel for treatment, i.e. a new knee or a new hip in one of our facilities in, in Mexico, um, is surrounded by a highly incentivized cost basis. Why is that? It's because the, the cost of goods, in other words, the cost of doing business 
the cost of services in healthcare uh, in in Mexico versus the United States is is very very different. Meaning, um, it is not as expensive in Mexico as it is in the United States. And there's many many factors as to why, but you know some in particular would be the cost of using an operating room, the cost of a surgeon in Mexico, the cost of anesthesia in Mexico, the cost of an anesthesiologist. You know, there's so many different factors. The cost of uh, the joint actually used is part of that as well. So everything is, is sort of baked into the overall experience, the overall cost of the procedure for the patient. So um, I would say when it comes to picking the, the joint, there's, you know, there's not a huge menu of manufacturers out there that are making these, these joints. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a somewhat of a tight market, if you would. So what is used in the, in Mexico would, would be, uh, it's the, the highest quality that you would find in the United States as well. So there's no shortcuts taken when it comes to treating the patients in that regard. I just saw on the news, I want to say a couple of days ago, an advisory from the U.S. government for U.S. travelers in relation to fungal meningitis this year in Mexico. What can you tell us about that? Unfortunately, that is... Um, that is a lack of, uh, proper procedure in either cleaning or sterilizing or preparation, or it could be all the above, you know, fungal, the largest documented that I know of the largest fungal meningitis outbreak happened not too long ago in the United States. And so, and that was a result of. A, a compounding pharmacy not following appropriate practices uh, when it came to preparing uh, medications that were uh, infused, I believe, uh, spinally infused, it resulted in, gosh, it was, uh, I believe, over 70 deaths. And so a very tragic event. And unfortunately, that is, uh, that is a direct result of not following proper procedures and protocols. But I can tell you on our side, based upon the skill sets that we have to evaluate <clears throat> the preparation, the planning, uh, the actual procedure and its outcome is, is vetted out by uh, the highest quality professionals employed by NASH. And that's inclusive of the environment by way of which the procedure is delivered as well. We, we do not just pick uh, a hospital because of its location or because maybe it's by a beach or whatever the case may be. These are facilities that are adhering to the higher standards. So uh, again, an unfortunate event. Uh, we did track that story and um, uh, we make sure that we keep abreast of these issues as well, but our procedures at hand as best we can, we'll mitigate that. What can you tell us about the 
antibiotic-resistant bacteria spread that the hospitals are facing. Certainly in the United States, this has become a big problem. So diseases or infections that they have no treatment for, they're resistant to the antibiotic treatments. What can you tell us in relation to that and orthopedic procedures in Mexico? Well, that, I mean, that is something that's not new. That's been very prevalent for as long as I can remember. Uh, bacteria are incredibly smart, believe it or not. They want to survive, and hence we're talking about uh, the bacteria now being resistant to a form of medication, any form, frankly. And so that's always going to be an issue. That is not going to go away. What I can tell you is that um, we make sure that when a patient is discharged, we do not have that issue happening. We've never had that issue. Uh, I'm not saying we are completely um, protected around that. I think everybody is vulnerable to that, regardless of which hospital you use. But the reality here is that we make sure that the patient, when discharged, does not have that. And if they do have that, then we will follow uh, the same protocols that others would have when it would come to treating it. There's no way we would discharge the patient. And that would fall into the care of the hospital and our physicians. What can you tell us about ransomware attacks? As we're speaking, I'm seeing a headline that the second largest health insurer says they had patient data stolen. I think this is in Massachusetts. Uh, but this is not exceptional. It's just become commonplace. Cities, states, hospitals, companies being attacked and having their systems frozen or uh, having ransomware attacks. What can you tell us in terms of patients whose employers and who they themselves give you their data? In what way are they protected f from these attacks? Yeah, that's that. Uh... It's getting scarier. Not gonna, not gonna make light of that subject at all. And you know, just um, there's been some big uh, health carriers and retailers that literally almost got shut down as, as a result. Target almost became um, obliterated from a construction worker um, having access to um, their internal system and, and grabbing as many credit cards as possible. So, um, but. To us, we, we do take that very seriously. So we are actually, we're refreshing our system. Uh, even though we are in compliance right now with a uh, cloud-based HIPAA, um, uh, um, HIPAA enforced environment, meaning what does that mean is that we make sure that our uh, system has several lines of delineation from um, the outside public, we're very specific as to who within our organization can have any type of access to patient-sensitive information. It's only accessible to our treating team, nobody else. Um, we, we make sure that um, we follow specific encryption protocols, and uh, we are constantly training our employees to be very mindful about incoming emails that look so darn convincing uh, some of which may look like it's from me asking for information or to click here. We 
we have to be so diligent. Everybody has to be diligent around that because it is very easy for somebody once they gain access into your system, I don't care who you are, it happens to our government, it happens to the private sector, um, that they can gain access into your system. So I can tell you from our side, we take it very, very seriously, knowing that there are there are bad people out there that are looking to gain access to your system, knowing that there's a ransom opportunity for 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 uh, for remedy, uh, and uh, you know, and there's no employer group out there that wants to be recognized uh, throughout the country as somebody who is um, a deviant or does not have the right protocols in place to make sure that we are protecting the information as best as possible. So we're constantly evolving. In summary, we're constantly looking forward to best practices and making sure that we're constantly teaching our employees to be safe and diligent when it comes to managing patient sensitive information. What can you share with us post-op? This, um, of course, is a painful procedure, whichever one we are referring to. I think generally speaking, when we talk about orthopedics, you can expect that it's, there's going to be some pain before and after, right? What is on offer for these patients who are going through the process in terms of pain management, uh, especially now in this fentanyl opioid? Um, how are you all managing those issues? Yeah, well, upon discharge, a uh, patient is visited by our physician team, and uh, this is just like a daily round, um, our hotel is right next to our facilities. <clears throat> That's where um, the physician, once they're discharged, will still meet with them. Um, if there's a pain management uh, protocol needed, and typically there is, we tend to stay away from anything that's opioid-based just because we feel that um, the non-opioid approaches are still as effective. And um, it, it really boils down to movement. You got to start moving once you start, uh, once, you, once you have received that new joint. And within the NASH experience, you are with a physical therapist daily, anywhere from five to seven uh, days uh, post-op uh, in Mexico. And so uh, you're constantly under uh, guidance of our physician. You're under uh, guidance of our nurse that's on staff post-discharge. And then you're also on guidance with our physical therapist post-discharge as well. So a lot of attention is placed to the patient uh, upon discharge, uh, making sure that um, pain is being controlled, uh, but also too that the patient is moving. That is uh, the so important when it comes to uh, post-procedure. But isn't movement part of what causes the pain? Yeah, but lack of movement will create greater pain, believe it or not. So you have to start moving. You've got to start getting used to that new joint. You have to start getting used to just your weight-bearing position because chances are you were putting more weight on the opposite side of your frame where the joint was replaced, you know, so it's a relearning process as well. 
So controlling pain can be controlled by, again, non-opioid alternative and transitioning into uh, a a non-steroidal type of medication, uh, anti-inflammatory medication to help have, have that patient be comfortable. So we tend to lean towards the safe side of, of dispensing medications, but still using medications that will help keep the patient comfortable. It's not going to eliminate the pain. It's going to be there, but immediately we, we get those patients to start moving. You kind of have to make your way through the pain because there's no way it's going to go away, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, eventually, of course, it goes away. But even if somebody had a new knee in the United States or uh, within our uh, program, you're still going to have pain. That's just how it is. Um, How you mitigate it is certainly the most important part. You know, it's becoming very popular here in the U.S. to have an acute knee replacement, meaning you go in early, you get your knee replacement, and you leave. And uh, that is a cost containment expectation that's happening more and more in the United States with physical therapy being scheduled thereafter. Um, But in our model, you literally from post-discharge are always with, you're visiting with a physician, you're visiting, you're always with a nurse, and then you're visiting your physical therapist on site. So having that level of attention and medical expertise within the NASH model, we feel is very, very important. Speaking of the therapy, how many weeks or months does the recovery require? You said that for the first week, they will remain in Mexico. So what happens with the patients when they return stateside? How is that process handled for people who go seeking orthopedic procedures in Mexico? Yep. So that there lies the level of continuity of care. So our physician uh, will communicate, uh, and this will be determined even before the procedures, who do we communicate with, um, whether it be their primary care physician or their U.S.-based orthopedic surgeon, or um, which physical therapy outlet is closest to their home in the United States. And so we will communicate that. We'll even, if needed, we will set up the appointments for uh, the patient as well uh, upon returning to the U.S. uh, to maintain, um, if there's needed, professional physical therapy. Uh, Usually from our experience, um, having that that seven-day, five-day experience with our physical therapist, the, the patient and the caregiver learn what are the important movements when it comes to physical therapy? And we've also experienced also with our patients is that they'll continue to practice that at home uh, when they return to the States. And sometimes even with a new knee and a hip, uh, one would be surprised just by the act of walking uh, turns into physical therapy. That makes a big difference. So all of that is provided on our side. 
how does that work with you know, all this talk about uh, remote work? So people go have their surgery and then they come back to the U.S., but maybe they're living in a small town in you know, fill in the blank somewhere rural or exurban where there are no physical therapy facilities. How is that a common occurrence? And if so, how do you deal with it? Yeah, I think it falls back to what I mentioned earlier. I mean, if that's the case, um, I can't think of a patient we had like that, but nevertheless, we might, where um, once they are, once they go through the physical therapy experience with our team, they get to understand what are the important movements, what are the important repetitions, what are the important um, expectations uh, in terms of time of day, when, how long to continue their movements. And so um, typically the patient will carry that on going forward, knowing that by that fifth or sixth day, they're really starting to, they're, they're feeling a lot better than that first day of discharge. And so it's the, it's the teaching aspect that they take with them that they can conduct their physical therapy going forward by way of which of just moving, literally just walking. You'd be surprised how effective that is. What do you think are the largest impediments to this becoming a more common process or option? Uh, specific to orthopedics, I think the biggest one is going to be the cost of a procedure. <clears throat> the cost, the cost of orthopedic procedures are um, coming down in the United States. And it, it reflects back to what I mentioned earlier. It's, it, these procedures have become, are becoming more acute care, meaning you show up at 7 a.m. in an acute care facility, the replacement is done, and you're literally discharged the same day. And so there's a cost containment as a result of that, meaning use of the facility, number one. And so uh, this is also why uh, NASH is really expanding its portfolio into other services. And it's not just the procedural side, too. It's, it's, it's the specialty pharmacy space that is um, just a massive opportunity right now uh, for cost savings uh, just because of its elevation in, in costs. It's, it's not getting cheaper. It's getting more and more expensive. Um, so we, we, see, we see that dynamic happening within the orthopedic space. Um, and so we'll closely monitor that as well, just to stay as competitive as possible. As the demographics of the, the baby boomers age out and the next generations come in, the Gen Xers, the millennials, the Gen Zs, I imagine that some of these numbers are going to shift. What do you anticipate that is going to take over? Well, I think, yeah, that falls back as to why we want to, we will and are diversifying our, our, our um, service offerings. And, you know, that, that could very well be a shift. Um, you know, we are getting smarter in environment and to, um, there's becoming a, a workforce that is not as physical, truthfully. I mean, that's all going to be relative to the need for um, 
or, or the shift in, in, in joint replacements, you know, nothing would ever uh, slow down anybody's genetic disposition, but there's going to be some uh, environmental changes that I think are going to happen as a result of um, change in workforce dynamic and expectations. But um, uh, we don't necessarily see a decline. I think if there'll be a decline, I think, frankly, it's going to be because of cost changes uh, that that uh, I see on the horizon relative to the orthopedic space. What uh, th suggestions, let's say three suggestions, would you share with our listeners who want to gain a better understanding of medical tourism in Mexico for orthopedic patients in terms of either procuring such medical tourism access or perhaps from the company perspective as an employer, how this might be possible? How can they learn more about the issues we've been discussing, basically? Well, I would visit our website. Um, uh, currently still under North American Specialty Hospital. This is our original name. We are changing that. You'll see our new website launched here in a very short order, Network of Advanced Specialty Healthcare. And the reason why we embarked upon that change is because our portfolio is becoming a lot more diversified in our services. So number one, I would visit our website. Uh, it's, a, it's a great resource of information that will explain tips, how to be safe, uh, what, is it a, what, what, what does NASH feel is a proper travel for treatment program, proper by way of which it's safe, and it promotes uh, uh, positive financial and clinical slash health outcomes. That is most important. Uh, also, too, if you are considering um, going down the path of having an orthopedic procedure, uh, also, too, uh, don't be shy about asking your human resource representative from your employer what are your options, if any. Uh, and if they're not sure, they'll certainly find the answers for you. And um, also keep in mind that if you, as somebody who's a candidate for an orthopedic procedure, wants to go down the path of saving money out of your own pocket and also uh, taking on uh, a level of responsibility of saving your employer money, uh, NASH would be a great option. It's a, it's a truly, truly white glove concierge experience that is a very handheld, very safe program. And by, by really saving not only you money, but saving your employer money, it, it, at the end of the day, it, it extends to the new benefit year where premiums begin to get potentially a little bit more controlled. And we are saving everybody in the ecosystem out-of-pocket expenses. And um, those are the things I would have somebody consider and look at. Mike, thank you for joining us from Omaha, Nebraska. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you for your time. It was nice to spend time with you. And to our audience, you have been listening to Michael R. Agostino, RPH, who is CEO of the Network of Advanced Specialty Healthcare, NASH, 
formerly known as the North American Specialty Hospital, who discussed medical tourism in Mexico for orthopedic patients. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.